Good morning. Good to see everyone this morning. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Last week we had a nice break, um, pause in our study of the book of Colossians, which has been Christ sufficient, Christ supreme, and it was a blessing to walk through Psalm 62 and pray that was an encouragement to you as you went through the week. And today we want to return and we want to pick up back really where we left off and we want to continue working our way through um, this book. Today we'll slow it down. Next week we'll pick it up a little bit faster as we walk through. But today I want to look at two verses, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. title of the message today is The Christian Life, Walk in Him. And let's read these two verses. Therefore... As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, we bow our head before you and thank you for your holy and inspired word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would empower the preaching of the word that you would remove all distractions from my own heart and mind and from all of our hearts and minds that we uh, may see Christ so clearly in this passage that anyone who may be here today who has never received Christ and confessed Him as Savior and Lord, that they will do that today. And that we as believers will leave here this morning with a renewed commitment to walk in Him, to walk, to live our lives in light of the gospel, and we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for gathering us here today, for the blessing and privilege it is to worship you and to exalt your son and to encourage one another. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, I don't know if you, maybe some of you enjoy hiking or walking. I enjoy hiking, and one of the things that um, I always take with me when I go on a hike is I always like to have a map uh, either on my phone or a paper version uh, of a map uh, so that I know where I am, I know where I'm going. And the other thing that I always look for when I'm on a hike is I look for signposts. I like to look for markers along the way. I always start on a trailhead reading everything that's usually in the display as you, as, as you embark on the trail. And then all along the way, I, I, I like to, I'll, I'll stop whenever I either come to a fork in the road or the path or whenever there's something that catches my attention. And usually a signpost is there, maybe warning you of danger or pointing you of what you need to do as you move ahead. Dangers like maybe there's water to avoid, maybe there's going to be cliffs on either side. You know what I mean. Those markers, those signposts become really important. And when we come to verse 6 and 7 of, of this letter to the church of Colossae, really verse 6 and 7, they serve as a transitional signpost that Paul drops in, the ta- in, in this letter. And really this signpost, this, these two verses um, reflect the heart of the letter. Um, they, they lead us to the very core of what Paul is wanting to communicate. And you see that with the transitional word, therefore. Therefore, that transition, and you sh- everybody I'm sure realizes this, that anytime you're writing or you're reading something, transition words like therefore are important because they usually connect us to what has been said and then carry us to what follows. That's why transitions are important. And these two verses are a summary of what has already been said and a signpost to what is ahead. Paul summarizes the glorious vision of Christ that he has set to the church. You remember in verses 15 through 20 where we called that the hymn to Christ where Paul uh, just expounds and, and in, a, in, a, in a form of doxology praises God for who Christ is and, and, and gives the church a, a glorious vision of his sovereignty and his work as our redeemer. 
And that, that's what you see there in that first part of the letter. And of course, uh, what is also there is the glorious salvation that has come to us by His grace. But these two verses, not only are they a summary of what has already been said, and I, I guarantee you, if you go back and you just read the first chapter again, you, you will see that Paul's not only going back to that vision, but even reflecting on what he has said in his prayers for the church in the very beginning. But these two verses are also a signpost preparing them for the dangers of false teaching, which we'll begin to dive into next week. And as Paul prepares them for the dangers that lie ahead, he is instructing them, showing them how to walk on the Christian journey, how to move forward on the path, right? We just don't stand at the trailhead. We've got to move on. We've got to start walking. We've got to start the journey. And that's what Paul does here. And Paul is aware that there will be countless detours and dangers, and they will lead away from Christ, the gospel, and a life that pleases him. There were countless offers that were being on the marketplace of religion and philosophy that was beginning, that were beginning to creep into the life of the church. You had false teachers that were promoting secret knowledge that if you just followed them, they could let you in on some keys and some secrets that otherwise Paul and the apostles weren't aware of. They were also offering to the Colossian Christians new experiences, spiritual experiences, emotional experiences, religious highs, if you will, that if they could experience those things, then it would take them to a whole new level of spirituality. They were also offering them uh, just regurgitated legalism, basically Judaism repackaged and offered to these new believers that if they followed certain codes and observed certain things that they would they would have additional righteousness or they would they would then be be uh, they would receive god 's blessing in unique ways. All of those things that were being offered to them came with promises of deeper and fuller spiritual life. So Paul wants to drop a signpost, put an anchor here, so that he can tether them to the truth of the gospel and prepare them for what lies ahead. And what lies ahead is a walk. And to walk in the New Testament, whenever we see that word walk, it's just referring to how we live, how we walk, how we live as Christians. And so, brothers and sisters, we are on a path, a journey that leads us through this world And the gospel is our map. But not only is it our map, it is also what marks the path all the way till we get home to be with Christ. And what Paul is saying to them applies to us today, right? There's all these dangers that are out there and all around us. And as we progress through the Christian life, what Paul wants them to know is that we progress really the same way we began, We never forsake the map, if you will. We never give up the map. We never set down the gospel and move on to something else. We, 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 we never, and, and every step of the way, not only do we do that, but we, we don't forsake the map, but every marking or signpost along the journey is really the gospel leading us all the way through. And as we grow as Christians and as we mature and as we walk with Christ, what happens is our understanding of the gospel deepens and as a result, our life is transformed by the power of the gospel. So what Paul does here is he presents a clear blueprint for the Christian life that will guide us through the whole rest of the letter. And here's, here it is. Ready? Here's the signpost. Here's the blueprint. Here's the key truth. We must walk in the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ the Lord. That's what he's saying here in these two verses. I mean, literally, that is the theme that will take us all the way through to the very end of this letter. We must walk in the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ the Lord. We must live in the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ the Lord. We must live there. We must dwell there. We must walk in Him. 
all the way to the end. So the question that we have to ask is, then what does it look like to live in the sufficiency of Christ? What is it like, what does it mean to live in such a way that we recognize that Christ is all that we need and we need to avoid and run from every other message that would lead us away from Christ? Well, there are three things. There's three things about, uh, that Paul gives us. First, we receive Christ. Number two, we walk in Christ. And then three, we grow in Christ. That is the blueprint of the Christian life. That is, those are the signposts all the way through our journey. We receive Christ, we walk in Christ, and then lastly, we grow in Christ. So let's begin. Let's look at the first thing. We receive Christ. Look what he says. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. In other words, this is where the Christian life begins. You have received Christ. You have received Christ just as I have presented him to you, the supreme Lord over all, the redeemer of the, of the church and your souls. And that is exactly where our Christian journey begins, receiving Christ. But we have to ask, what does it mean then to receive Christ? What does Paul mean when he says that? And there are two things that I want you to see. First, it means that we confess the Christ of the gospel. Do you see it? He says, if we receive Christ Jesus the Lord, there's the confession. There's the confession of Christ. And, and, and truly, the language here, that word receive, it is also used in, in other places describing a student receiving a body of instruction or form of tradition from a teacher. And what's unique about us as Christians is that we have received not a body of instruction, but we have received the person of Christ and his work for our salvation. In other words, Jesus is the essence of our faith. We're not following a code. We're not, we're not adhering to a system. We are joined to a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says this, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, he's basically saying we have received the truth of the gospel. And we confess that this Christ of the gospel. And that is critical. In fact, it's critical because many would say, oh, well, you know, I'm a Christian, which means I follow the teachings of Jesus. That, that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul, Paul is not saying here that we follow, we embrace the sayings of Jesus. Or we embrace the teachings of Jesus. Or we're just trying to follow the ways of Jesus. As if Jesus came to just be an example to us in how to live. No, Christ did not come for the central purpose of setting an example for us to follow. Christ came to rescue us from our sin and to raise us, raise us to new life. That's why Christ came. New life through His life, His death, and His resurrection. And that is why we have received Christ Himself. We have received Him, the person of Christ, as our Savior and our Lord. Now, again, you may think, like, I'm, I'm just kind of going after nuances, but I'm not. Every word of the text is important. So when, when Paul says you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, that is, that is very intentional. He, in other words, he is, he is describing Jesus with all of his titles. So for us to receive Christ means we have received the one who is sent. In other words, when he says Christ, what Paul is saying is he is the sent one. He is the Messiah. So when you receive Christ, you receive the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the anointed one of God. He is the eternal Son of God who was sent from heaven to be our Savior. And as the Christ or the sent one, He came from heaven leaving aside His glory that He shared with the Father and the Spirit in the Trinity 
And he came to earth to fulfill the eternal covenant and to redeem his people from their sin. As Christ, he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, all the pictures of the Old Testament, and all the promises of the Old Testament. And on earth, Jesus repeatedly referred to his pre-existence before Abraham, I was. And in referring to his pre-existence, it was clear that he came from heaven to accomplish his Father's will, his plan of redemption. So to receive Christ is to receive the one sent to save us. We're not just trusting anyone. We're trusting the Christ, the anointed of God, who was sent to heaven to save us. So when the original audience would have heard Paul say this, that's exactly, especially with a Jewish background, that is exactly what they would have understood when they heard Paul call Jesus Christ or the Christ. But there's a second part of that title, right? Do you see it? Christ Jesus. Jesus. The name given to him at his birth, which we could say then, not only is he the sent one, he is the Savior. The eternal Son of God became man. He took on flesh, or he became flesh, as we've been studying on Wednesday nights. And he was born of the Virgin Mary. And as Mary and Joseph were instructed, what name did they give him? Matthew one twenty three. His name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then, he, and then what does the angel then go on to say? To fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah that his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so when we say that he is the Savior, we are saying that he is fully God and fully man because only a Savior who is fully man and fully God can actually save us. And as the God-man... He went to the cross and he died on the cross for our sins and he received the full weight of God's wrath that each and every one of us deserve. And when John the Baptist even saw him on that day when he came to the Jordan River to be baptized, do you remember what John said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the reason that is important is because, listen, to receive Jesus Christ the Lord is to receive the only Savior who can rescue us from God's wrath and redeem us from our sin and restore us into a right relationship with the living God of the universe. So we receive Christ, the one sent. We receive Jesus, the Savior. But then notice... The full title, Christ Jesus, the Lord. I mean, do you get that? The Lord. We have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. What makes him the Lord? Well, I mean, if you go to other places where Paul writes, we know that he will anchor this truth that Jesus is Lord, not just in the fact that he went to the cross and he died for our sins, but that he was placed in the grave. And three days later, after he was put in that tomb, he came back to life. And he passed through the burial clothes. He walked out of the tomb and he rose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he then went and he appeared to many witnesses to demonstrate his physical, bodily, and literal resurrection. And he ascended then into heaven and he is there right now interceding us, interceding for us, and one day he will return again to judge the living and the dead. And so we confess Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, the Lord. That is the peak of our confession. He is not only the sent one, the Christ. He is not only the anointed one of God. He is not only the son who came from heaven, born of the virgin, who died on the cross. But he is the risen Lord and all power and all glory and all authority belongs to him. That is our confession. That he is the sovereign Lord of all. And there is no one higher. There is no one greater. 
And there is no greater confession that we can make than this. Jesus is Lord. And because he is Lord, because he is Lord, he's the only one who can save. Romans chapter 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, what? That Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Not, I hope you'll be saved. Not, you might be saved. Not, you, you could be saved. But if you confess Jesus is Lord, if you receive this Christ as your Savior, as the Son sent from heaven, and you receive him as Lord of all, including Lord of you, you will be saved. So what's your confession? <laughs> what do you confess unto salvation? Have you confessed him as Lord? But, but I also want to drill down into one other thing. Not only we receive Christ, not only does receiving Christ mean that we confess the Christ of the gospel, but it means that we submit to the Lordship of Christ. It means that we submit to the Lordship of Christ. So what does it mean then to receive? Is it just that we receive salvation like a gift that is given to us at Christmas or our birthday? And while I don't want to suggest that, that, that there's some connotation to that in the meaning, I want to take it a step further because I often think that people think when, they, when they, we hear, well, I receive Christ, they they might just think that meant they walked an aisle or they repeated a prayer or they signed a paper or they felt a feeling in their heart or that they just made a decision. To receive Christ means none of that. It means that you heard the gospel, that you understood the gospel. Go back to the first chapter of Colossians. That you learned the gospel. And then the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin and you responded to the gospel by surrendering to Christ. By submitting to His Lordship over you. In other words, the implication is clear. In salvation, the gospel demands you, demands me to forfeit our independence, to Repent of our self-autonomy. Our self-made projects of salvation. The gospel demands us to surrender our rights to live for ourselves and do whatever we please. No, the, the gospel commands us to release all of that and Christ calls us to what? To deny ourselves, to die to ourselves, and to pick up our cross and follow Him. To submit to the divine will. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24. And so make no mistake that salvation to receive Christ means that uh, far more than what so often happens in our mind or thinking. But to receive Christ means that we have bowed to His Lordship. There's no getting around this. There's no such thing as taking Jesus as fire insurance to get out of hell, but then having no transformation of heart that surrenders oneself, mind, heart, and will to his lordship. There's, there's no getting around the fact that we must submit to him in, as Lord. John MacArthur writes this, he is Lord, and those who refuse him as Lord cannot use him as Savior. Everyone who receives him must surrender to his authority. For to say we receive Christ when in fact we reject his right to reign over us is utterly utter absurdity. It is a futile attempt to hold on to sin with one hand and take Jesus with the other. Let us be clear, Jesus, is the, Jesus Christ is the Lord and he is the Savior. But to receive him means we bow to his lordship. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, that's John MacArthur and I don't like, I don't like, man, I don't like what John MacArthur has to say. Well, here's what Billy Graham has to say. Not that, either, not that either one of them are authority over Scripture. But Billy Graham said this, no, one, no man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. 
He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have had emotional religious experiences. However, he is not only, he is not truly converted until he is surrendered to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Master. I say amen to both of those. Because the reality is this, the essence of true conversion is bowing to the Lordship of Christ. And bowing to the Lordship of Christ is a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the sinner, revealing our sin and our need for Christ, and then enabling us by opening our eyes to surrender to Jesus. Not hesitantly, but fully to Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So do you see this? We receive Christ. That phrase shows us that our confession, our confession is Christ, is the Christ of the gospel. But it also means that we have submitted ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. Here I am, Lord. I surrender. I cannot save myself. I cannot redeem myself. I have no right to live my life to please me. I surrender to you. So here's the application. We must receive Christ for salvation and submit to his authority. We must receive Christ as Savior and Lord. And we must surrender to his authority for salvation. Have you confessed Christ as Savior and Lord? Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you crossed the line from hearing the truth in your head to responding to the truth in your heart by surrendering to Christ and receiving Him, Jesus Christ, the Lord? Maybe you say, I have, and I am a believer. But what areas are in our life that remain that still need to be surrendered to His Lordship? Now, that leads me to a second observation, okay? So first, we receive Christ. That's the Christian life. That's the starting point. The second thing is, we walk in Christ. So I divided the phrase, but it reads this way. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. In Him. So you have confessed and received Christ. Now what? What's the next thing? Well, what Paul's saying is, go on. Progress. Start down the trail. But as you start down the trail, you walk, what? In Him. Two things that we need to observe by that phrase, so walk in Him. We continue the Christian life in Christ. This is the first imperative, too, that we have here, right? Receive Christ, that's something that has happened. That has already happened. That's in the perfect tense. It's done. We have received Christ. Now, what is the command now that we have received Christ? Walk or live in Him. In other words, what Paul's saying is, is we go on in Christ. We walk in His sufficiency and under His Lordship. You don't graduate from the gospel. You don't trust Christ for salvation and then spend the rest of your Christian life trusting in your own strength or looking for strength from something else and then relying on that in order to earn God's favor. You don't move away from the gospel. We don't move away from the gospel and then begin to try to rely on our performance. Through the cross, Christ has secured everything that you and I need. All the grace, all the peace, all the love, listen, all the blessing that you need is in Christ. From here to the moment you're in heaven, everything is in Him. And that is why Jesus came. That is why on the cross He cried, It is finished. So that you and I will see that He is the all-sufficient Savior. And that in Him, we have everything that we truly need. Now, once we become Christians, Paul is telling these, this church, you don't walk away from Christ, neither do you walk apart from Christ. You walk in Him. 
in all his benefits. Why is that so central for us to get? Why do we have to say that almost week in and week out? Because if we don't get that, then we will fall into the traps that he's going to describe in a little bit, legalism, mysticism, and all sorts of things. But Christian, today what I want you to see is, is that if you don't understand that we, we don't walk apart from Christ, we don't walk away from Christ, we walk in Christ, the reason you need to know that is because it will help you avoid the traps of moralism, performance-driven Christianity, self-help Christianity that leads you to look to yourself and to your performance for assurance and security rather than Christ. I read somewhere, and I agree with what I read, I don't think that our problem is that we believe we have to earn salvation. I think every one of us would say amen to that. But what I do think, based on experience and just walking with people through the years, I think that our struggle is the idea that our performance, our spiritual disciplines, our whatever it is that we're talking about, that those things keep us in God's favor. They don't keep us in God's favor. Christ keeps us in God's favor. And so what happens is, we think that we have to do, we have to perform, we have to produce, and we have to do all this to impress God so that we can get His blessing. And listen, that theme is, is, just, it is just running through so much that's out there in the larger Christian market. Because if we don't impress Him, if we don't try to earn His blessing or at least keep his favor, well, then he'll be mad at us. And then you got Christians running around constantly thinking that God is mad at them, that he's upset, right? Like some, some perfectionist father that you have to keep doing and keep performing, and he's never happy, he's never satisfied. No, God is satisfied because he is satisfied in Christ. And the text says, what does Romans say? If God be for you, who can be against you? Well, wait a minute. How do I know God's for me? And then we go through our checklist, and we're trying to check all these boxes. And the reality is set the checklist down and look to the gospel. How do I know God is for me? He who did not spare his own son but gave himself, gave him up for us, how much more will he give us freely all things according to his grace? So, 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 so the, the, the Christian life then, and I live this way for a long time, becomes a rat race to try harder, to do more, because if I'm not doing enough, then I gotta do all these things. And then what happens is preaching becomes moralistic speeches trying to get people to continue to check boxes that Christ has already fulfilled. And what happens is we don't experience grace. We don't get to enjoy God because we're running around exhausted instead of sitting at the feet of our Savior. I've said this for years. We ought to take new Christians and give them a whole year of just learning the doctrine of Christ, just teaching them who Jesus is, what he has accomplished, and what that means for their lives before we ever throw them into, the, in, into all the imperatives that do come following what Christ has done. Let us fall in love with Christ first. And then all the things that we should do will come easily. So Paul is telling this church, if you're saved by grace, then live by grace. And what will happen then if we live by grace? By the grace by which we've saved. Guess what? It's weird. It's a paradox. The gospel of grace will produce a desire for obedience. It will. What does law do? It crushes. It kills. What does grace do? It gives life. It gives life. And Paul doesn't want the life taken away from this church. He wants them to walk in him. So we will, if we're walking in Christ, that means we will continue the Christian life in him and all his benefits. But secondly, it means that we will conduct our lives to please Christ our Lord. In other words, amazing. The gospel that saved you will be the gospel that sanctifies you. 
And the deeper you go and the more you understand this gospel, then you know what will happen? Your conduct will come into harmony with your confession. Your behavior will change the deeper you go into what Christ has done for you. That's the point. And we will then begin to live out the Christian life in a lifestyle that is honoring to the Lord or to use Paul's prayer in the beginning of the letter, worthy of our Lord. So what might that look like? Well, I I don't want to go too far down the the beaten path here, uh, uh, like chasing a rabbit trail, but I do want to show you something. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. It won't be on the screen. We will conduct our lives to please Christ. What does that look like? Go to Ephesians. I want to show you this real quickly. Ephesians 5, and listen to what Paul says to the church. Go down just to, I'll just give a couple of verses here. Ephesians 5, verse 2. Paul says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see the imperative, the indicative? In other words, the command is to walk in love. Live in love with one another. Love each other. Be gracious to one another. Be kind to one another. Why? Because of what God has done in Christ for us. So what will our walk look like? It'll be a walk that's marked by love. As you live in light of the gospel... You will love others. You will show patience. You will begin to display kindness. And you will begin to extend grace. You will forgive. And and you will forbear one another. Why? Because Christ did that for you. See how the gospel is the fuel? Look at, go down to verse 8. In verse 8, it says, same, Ephesians 5. He goes on to say, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk, live in the light. In other words, in Christ you walk in love. In Christ you will begin to walk in the light of His holiness. And you will begin to kill sin. In other words, what Paul's saying, what the Puritans say, Christ will become sweet and then sin will become bitter. Because you'll be walking in the light. So if we're walking in Him, we're walking in love, we're walking in light. One last verse, we will walk in the truth. Third uh, John, third John, verse three, he says, I delight. I'm, I'm thrilled when I see my children walking in the truth. In Christ, the gospel truth begins to define the way we think and everything that we do. When Paul says walk in him, he is calling the church to this. Let the gospel shape our attitudes, our thoughts, our behaviors, our relationships in such a way that when the gospel begins to shape those things, we will be freed from performance and perfectionism and legalism and guilt, and we will be freed to serve Christ out of a heart overflowing with thanksgiving. That's what he's driving at. And in fact, You may walk away and say, well, what you're saying then is no imperatives matter. Doesn't matter how we live. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) And if you, if it will go on next week. But the point is, is that when we go on and we begin looking at those imperatives, at the commands, at calls to obedience, I want you to see that Paul anchors all of it in the finished work of Christ. Husbands, love your wives. Why? Because you have to obey? Because that is the rule? No. As Christ loved the church. Let the gospel fuel your obedience. And the more you stand beneath the fountain of the gospel, then the more you will overflow with the grace of the gospel of Christ. So here's the truth applied. Right? We said a minute ago, The truth is we must surrender and we receive Christ as Lord, surrender to his lordship. But the truth here, we walk in him, we continue to live the Christian life in the sufficiency of Christ. What fuels your desires to live Christ and obey his word? Is it grace or is it law? Do you get up in the morning to read the word? Because you are driven by the grace of God in the gospel? Or because it's just a rule that you have to follow. 
Let it be grace that fuels us. And how are you walking in Christ? Are you walking in love and truth and faith and light? That leads me to the last thing. We receive Christ. Number two, we, we receive Christ. Number two, we walk in Christ. And then the third thing Paul says here is we grow in Christ. Now look at the text. So walk in him. All right, Paul, what's it look like to walk in him? Rooted in him. Built up in him. And established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, actually, in other translations, the grammar is even better. Here's another way you could read this. Having been firmly rooted, having been done. Having been firmly rooted and being built up in him, present tense. Having been established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Do you see it? What has been done and what is happening. This is really important. You see here what we would call the dynamics of growth. The dynamics of growth in the Christian life. We're walking in Him and we're growing in Him. And here's the dynamics of the Christian life. Indicatives and imperatives. What God has done fuels what we do. Grace, again, produces obedience. Look what Paul shows us. God's grace at work in us. Look at what God's grace is doing. We have been rooted in Christ. That is the passive voice, meaning it's done. And it's the perfect tense, meaning, again, that it is something that has happened to us. It's a once and for all thing. God has rooted you, planted you in Christ and Christ's amazing grace through the cross. Jesus is the source of our spiritual life, the foundation of our faith, and the identity of our soul. Your life is rooted in Christ, and because of that, all of our hope is in Him. That's why John, Jesus says in John 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, and apart from me you can do nothing. Where are you rooted? We are rooted in Christ. Aren't you glad that you are anchored in him? There's security for your soul. You are secure because you're rooted. You are planted like the tree by the water near the river in Psalm 1. So that's what's been done. But look at what is being doing. But I don't want you to miss it. What has been done is God's work. And what is being done is also God's work. Do you see it? We are being built up in him. Who's building us up? God is. Still the passive voice, but now it's the present tense. This is so encouraging to get this. It should encourage you this morning. In other words, God is still working on you and me. (laughs) We are being built up in him. He is building us up in Christ Jesus. And so if you are a Christian, here's what Paul's saying. You're growing. And he is committed to your growth. The Spirit of God who dwells in you is working in your life, conforming you to the image of His Son, and producing in you the fruit of salvation. And guess what? He will finish what He started. Because He who began a good work in us will complete it on the day of redemption. What Paul is suggesting here is that God is radically committed to your growth by His grace in the gospel. He's not leaving it up to you. He's working in you as you work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Aren't you glad that it's not up to you? I'd have quit yesterday. (laughs) Right? I mean, because there are good days, there's bad days. But praise God, he's working on us. And And so the encouragement that that is is that you may walk away and say, well, you know, I don't see the growth all the time. I don't feel the growth. When I look at my kids, I can't, like, watch them and say, oh, oh, you you just grew a millimeter. No, but it's like the other day. I looked at Isaac and I said, wait a minute, you're taller than me. (laughs) 
You just notice it, right? And that's what's happening in our Christian journey. He's changing you from one degree in another, even when you don't feel like he is. Even when you have maybe through your, through your mistakes and through your own indwelling sin, you've kind of maybe broken up some pieces that he's built. Guess what? He'll just keep putting it all back together again because he's committed to your growth. He is changing you. And I am utterly convinced I have never met a true believer who has received Christ who is not growing in their faith even when they don't feel like they are. And so I challenge you to realize that he's, he, we are being built up. But there's another thing. We have been established in the faith, Paul says. Paul gives one final perfect tense statement. We have been established. It's the building on a foundation. No other foundation can be laid than that which is already laid, which is the foundation of Christ Jesus. You are sealed in the faith. You are cemented into the foundation. (laughs) Right? And if the foundation is Christ, he's the rock. And it doesn't matter how hard the storm comes against you, you will not be moved. Even when you are, feel like you're barely holding on, you are on the firm foundation. That's what it means, that he has established you in the faith. And that word, the faith, is referring to the essential truths of the gospel. The faith that has been delivered to the saints. Salvation by grace through Christ. So he's established. And here's what Paul does. He uniquely connects growth again to what has already been transmitted. Did you see it? Look what he says. He says, having, uh, having been established in the faith, not new ideas, not new knowledge, but the faith, just as you were taught. The same gospel that saved you is the same gospel that is keeping you firm in salvation. Isn't it awesome? And so, and so our growth is tied to the truth of the gospel that began the whole Christian journey itself. So Peter writes, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter doesn't say grow in the grace and knowledge of new things out on the marketplace on new ways that you could rely on yourself and improve your Christianity. He says, no, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, of our Lord. Preach the gospel to your sin. Preach the gospel to your soul. And watch how your life is transformed by the truth you received in the very beginning. But last thing is the thankfulness then that overflows in our growth. There's the present tense. Abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. What is the response that we give? Don't you love it? It's, it's, I feel relief when I read that. I don't, feel like, I don't feel like I have to meet perfectionistic standards. I feel relief. Because he says abounding in thanksgiving. Our response to a sovereign work of God in our life in our salvation, even in our sanctification, is to overflow with thanksgiving. The gospel is at work in our life, producing obedience, and our hearts overflow, abounding with thanksgiving. We become a humbly, a humble, grateful people because we have tasted the goodness of God's grace and his faithfulness that endures for all generations through the gospel of his Son. If you have a problem with complaining, with grumbling, with a lack of gratitude, then go to the cross. Look at your Savior, who He is and what He's done, and your heart will overflow with thanksgiving. Hebrews 13, through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. So if you're rooted in Christ... You will grow in grace and truth if you're rooted in Christ. If you're rooted in him, then you will grow. The branches of your life will spread 
the length of the roots that are in him. That's why the hymn says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that led me safe thus far. And it will be grace that leads us home. So as we close, where have we gone on this journey? Right? We've received Christ, we walk in Christ, and we grow in Christ. These verses summarize the Christian life. And they are signposts to help you with the dangers ahead. Let us, beloved, commit ourselves to live, to walk in the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ the Lord. Let me ask you some questions as I close. Have you received Christ as Lord? Have you? Have you received Christ as Lord? Maybe you have and today you say, you know, I need to, I want to renew my commitment to Christ today. Then renew that commitment. Recommit yourself. Surrender those things that are still in your life to His Lordship that are keeping you from experiencing the joy of His grace. How are you living for Christ? How are you growing in Christ? And does your life overflow with gratitude? That's what it means. That's what it means to walk in the sufficiency of Jesus. Let's stand and let us pray. As we pray today and our worship team comes, maybe you have not received Christ. Will you do that today? Maybe today you need to come and you need to pray and you, can, you're, you are invited to come and pray at the altar and, and renew your commitment to him. Maybe today as you're singing, you just need to evaluate your heart. Are you living out of grace? Are you living out of guilt? Are you growing in him? Aren't you encouraged that he is committed to your growth? Let's pray. We are no longer our own, Father, but yours, bought with a price. Help us to surrender everything to you and to bow to the lordship of your son. Conquer every resistance and rebellion that remains in us. Make Christ sweet and sin bitter. You are ours, O God, and we are yours all because of the grace given to us in the gospel. Help us to live in Him, to grow in Him. And as we trust in Him, and Him alone for salvation, may we bring glory to Your name. Make us a grateful people, overflowing with thanksgiving toward You, until that day when Christ appears, and we are forever in His kingdom. And it is in His name we pray. Amen.